This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio. The title of the book, Customer Karma. Why stop at a one-night stand when you can have a lifetime relationship with your customers? And the author is Arjun Sen, and Arjun joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Arjun. Hi. Good morning, Steve. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, great to have you with us. Now, customer karma, I think we all know, have somewhat of a feeling about karma, but I think it would be really good for you, from your point of view, to define it from your point of view. What is good karma? You know, my definition of karma comes from learnings from my grandma. She would tell me stories growing up, and one of the things she would instill in me is karma is all about what you do. It's all about the focus on the word is about action. And based on what you do, you get reaction back. So in some ways, it is very similar to Newton's third law of physics, which talks about every action has an equal and opposite reaction. But the only difference in the concept of karma is causality, which is you need to do great karma to your customers or in life, not because you expect the results, but just because it is the right thing to do. And by doing the right thing, good and right things happen. Absolutely. And you put yourself in the best position to get results back. I like what you say. Good karma is cultivated by heart felt good action. So people will really feel that sincerity from you. Totally, absolutely. And that's one of the things which are very important is if you and I were in a business dealing, for me to truly understand what Steve needs is incredibly important. And that's the reason for me to engage from my heart. Without that, it would become giving you service level one with option two mechanically, which does not touch you. So what you talked about is very important, is good karma from the heart. Good karma from from the heart, and I think we can all relate on a real basic level. We're talking about relationships. It doesn't matter whether it's business, family, friendship, uh, just the meeting that new person, uh, you know, in a... In a a store or at a restaurant or in a business setting. It's all about how we treat others. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk about this, I guess one thing, of this real-life relationship, customer relationship. You can't put business relationships away in some kind of a business box. It's a real-life relationship, as you emphasize. So Tell us about the importance of first impression. So to me, just like if you meet a person, the same way with a business, when a customer comes in, the first instant the customer decides whether this relationship 
or there the brand has any connection or availability with the person. So that is incredibly important to manage because this happens spontaneously from deep inside. The same way in a date, the first impression, at the end of the first impression, you put the person in one of three buckets. One, what am I doing here? Versus, wow, I see amazing potential. Versus, I don't know, let's see how it goes. So the first impression is a great place to start. So it is a process. It needs to be carefully not only thought through, but felt through. That's what I'm hearing from you. Again, it all comes from feelings from the heart. Absolutely. You've written your book in a corporate language that we can relate to. Now, there's many uh, business books out there, and often, as you put it, they're really not relatable to what you're going through. So you've got a, a vast Background. Tell us a little bit about your background so we can better understand how you can understand what we might go through. Yes, so to me, in the corporate world, I have been in the restaurant industry where every experience is created for every guest, one guest at a time. Started at Pizza Hut, then went to Boston Market, then Einstein Bagels, and then was at Papa John's. And after that, when I started corporate uh, consulting with corporate world, I worked with a lot of hospitality, retail, and restaurants. And in every case, what I learned is something that you related to earlier was when we focus on customer relations, we always started with customers. But over time, what I real realized is the relationship and the commonality about relationships, whether it is customers or human relationships every day, is similar. And once you get relationships, then it's very easy to see what you would do in the corporate world. And if I may give one quick example, once you see the relationship, if you were single, Steve, for a second, would you put an ad in a dating site with your picture with a coupon on it <laughs> go out with me over the next two weeks and I buy you a drink with a fine print up to $6. <laughs> so if you won't do that in a relationship, why are we trying to buy customer business in, in our transactions with these short-term gimmicks which does not build the long-term relationship. So it's like you just pointed out in the restaurant world, every time a new customer walks through, that's a new person, a very unique individual, and they need to be treated that way. Absolutely. So to me, I look at marketing is very simple. It is an invitation from the heart. And if marketing is an invitation, and let's say if my family invited Steve, your family to our place, I could then greet you in one of two reactions. One is, wow, Steve, buddy, I can't believe you made it so excited. Or the other reaction could be, really? You're back again? I can't believe it. So to me, the whole thing goes with connection from the heart and how do you respond? Because that's what the customer cares about. So it's about customer satisfaction. Yes, it is. What's the best way then to develop this long-term relationship when you're going to avoid these gimmicks, as you pointed out? What is the best way for 
having this continual relationship that literally is going to bring back the customer. And, of course, the bottom line, as you pointed out, and I think we all understand this, it's about the cash register ringing. Absolutely. You got it right. At the end, it's all about the cash register, how many times you open and how much money you put in. And if you start right there, the valuation of a customer makes us all change our perspective. If I had a coffee shop and you came in and asked for a free refill, and on the board it says $2 for a refill, I will hesitate giving you the refill. But on the other side, if I right away sit, pause for a second, and realize Steve comes twice a week, every time spends you know approximately $10, which is $20 a week, approximately $1,000 a year, which is $5,000 a year, the light bulb goes on. I realize my whole business success depends on you, Steve, which means instead of now making you look at the board which says refills are $2, I ask you to sit down by saying, Steve, would you just sit down for a second? I'll brew a fresh pot of coffee and bring it to you with the condiments. Because I really think that whole attitude shift changes. And I think once you feel it, you don't need user manual or anything else. You really need to put one customer at a time and business becomes incredibly successful. So you are using real life business scenarios to point out how to do this in your book. Absolutely. And to me, that's the part about the book is you would not find 23 laws of customer satisfaction because you know those rules and laws don't work. The book is more about you calling your corporate buddy who shares his success and failure stories. And I emphasize failures are equally important from success. So each person who reads the book will have their own takeaway on how to use it in their world. So there's no one solution, but I'm just sharing my experiences from different corporate experiences. Well, I want to read a couple of of, of folks who have read your book and have given you uh, quite a great review. One said, Arjun has a brilliantly simple way of looking at a business through the eyes of its customers. If more brands could do the same, true customer loyalty would be less elusive. That is, uh, I think, eye-opening, if you (laughs) pardon me, but through the eyes of its customers. That's the way we have to look at our business. Yeah, first of all, you know, I'm really flattered with the review. And if I take everything I've talked about in the book, to me, it's all about one reader. If one reader likes it and feels that he or she got value from the book and takes time to write this review, I really think, you know, the journey I started, I have accomplished. And I'm really fortunate and grateful that at least one person feels this way. And that, I think, is the power in every business is one person at a time giving them what they need of actual true value that connects to them. Another reviewer said, after after reading Customer Karma, you will find it impossible to think about your customer interactions in the same old ways. It's more about, it's much more than just the pleasant hello and uh, how's everything and is everything 
uh, well with your product that we've shared with you. It's it's really, I guess it's a, as you've put it already, it's not a formula. It's a real life interaction with sincerity coming from the heart. I, I guess that's the best way, as we've already pointed out. How else can you talk about it? Absolutely, and that's the part, if you look at, is in a relationship, no two days are the same, which means if you are living a relationship with your significant other with a user manual, it just doesn't work. This is not a train that goes online. It just flies anywhere and everywhere. There are everyday challenges, and that's the part where the reflection from the heart comes out. And the second thing, if I point out to this particular review, what the person reflected so well is once you get the commonality between relationships and when I told you about the example of using a coupon in dating you were amused because you know we don't do that so I really think that is the power is once each person in our own way get the parallel of relationships I really feel this would be life changing for people because they cannot go back to the old way of customer service using a user manual. And as you point out, your book will not give the reader one road map for all situation. Instead, it is sure to trigger thoughts on what you can do differently. So that is your ultimate goal, is to help people get out of their comfort zone and start looking at customers in a much more sincere, heartfelt way. And absolutely. And I have fun doing it because, think, if you... When you read the review of the two, you know, individuals who, it just hit, you know, hit hit me right deep in my heart. I just felt something amazing, and that is so addictive. So to me, I think that's exactly what each person, once they go little bit outside their regular routine jobs, and touch customers' lives. First of all, the values of the reward and the returns that they would get is immense. But more importantly, it just adds excitement and meaning to jobs, which I don't think exist in a routine, you know, just coming in, open a cash register, follow, schedule A, B, C, D. It just doesn't, it's not there in that particular of a mechanical robot-like job. The title of the book, Customer Karma. We've been talking to the author, Arjun Sen. Arjun, what's the best way to get your book? You can get the book at Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com. It's also available at iTunes or anywhere you can get uh, digital copies of the book. You can also check the website of the book, Customer Karma, Karma with a K, customerkarma.org. Customerkarma.org. Well, thank you so much, Arjun, for joining us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Steve, for having me on the show. I truly appreciate this. You have a great day. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors, all quilters just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. 
Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com slash radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. The title of the book, The Truth Won't Help Them Now. And the authors are Joan Hunter and Stephen Kobos. And Joan joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Joan. Hello. Great to have you with us. You're talking to us from the high Sierras where there's lots of snow. That's correct. Lots of snow. (laughs) More snow than you can handle, but you can handle talking about the truth won't help them now. We'll talk more about the title in in a bit, but kind of set the stage about this tale of murder and gangland intrigue based on some real people and it of course it's a fictional account it's but it's still uh based on some real life stories correct that's correct most of the people we know or know of and uh that's what makes it interesting of course we added a few things of our own to uh pep it up a little i like to say fluff it up <laughs> well you that's the great a license you have as a fiction writer. Yes, and and we do enjoy. Uh, do you want me to tell you something about how we happen to be writing this book together? Please. Um, Stephen Kobos is my son. <laughs> I like to say that, and people think this little kid, he's 60. So, <laughs> <laughs> and has been a lawyer and has worked in the courts. And so most of the information we have is real. And then he uh, called his father, who was at once a deputy sheriff, so that we get all of the um, the procedures correct. So there's there are no things that aren't absolutely correct uh, in the book. We uh, looked up every uh, every street, every building everything that there and we put it in 1939 uh, just before World War II began um, and what this was at the end of um, de- the depression and there were people who were very poor and there was a lot of gambling going on and surprisingly uh, there was a, a, a fleet of ships that were parked uh, that were anchored uh, outside the three-mile limit, and in 1939, beginning of the year, Earl Warren was elected, or he took office as the Attorney General, and he wanted to get rid of all of the gambling and all of the boats outside the limit and all of the prostitution and the dog races and the cockfights. He wanted to get rid of all that stuff, and um, so... Uh, so he he started, but of course there was a lot of uh, resistance because people love to gamble. And the wrecks, the the uh, book that the uh, boat that the ship that we're talking about was making three hundred thousand dollars a month. 
gambling off the coast of Santa Monica, and he wanted to stop all that. So there was a lot of um, stuff going on at the time. And, of course, the story hinges around, at least it begins with a body, a bullet-riddled body of an accounting clerk from a gambling ship washes up under the Santa Monica Pier, and then, of course, we have the investigation. And because the gangsters are all fighting each other to get a bigger share of the pot, right? That's right. And the surprising thing that you don't think about now is that Many of the officials, the um, uh, the uh, policemen, the sheriffs, the um, people in the city council, they were all on the take because people were left over from pro- prohibition. All these people were on uh, were left over from prohibition, and they had uh, networks already set up so they could get the illegal booze in. And now they're doing the same thing to get the illegal money in. And so then the people who, who were from the East sent out Bugsy Siegel, Benjamin Siegel, to join in uh, help uh, the owner of the Rex to uh, get funnel money back East. And uh, once Bugsy Siegel got out here, he liked it so well. He wanted to be in movies and all that kind of stuff. And so they were pretty hard uh, pressed to uh, get people out. So you've got a lot of municipal authorities involved in this, police and district attorneys and uh, uh, investigative teams. So this, this pair of serial killers is on the loose, and Cliff Thomas, tell us about him. He's the Los Angeles County Deputy District Attorney. He's one of the prominent characters in your book. Yes, Cliff Thomas uh, is an attorney, and uh, he is Chinese. He's half Chinese, and his street name is The Chinaman. Uh, And he's an excellent district attorney, except that he's... uh, He's on the borderline. Part of the time, he's a completely good guy, and part of the time, he's uh, partly bad. Now, one of his clients is a woman named Zoe Wolfolk, who is a business consultant, it says on her uh, card, but in actuality, she's a psychic, and she's a well-known psychic. She has uh, uh, many people who are her clients, among them, one of her clients is uh, Jean MacArthur, the wife of Arthur, Douglas MacArthur. Uh, and she's the one who said to Jean MacArthur at one time, I don't know when this is going to happen, Jean, but I know that your husband is going to be involved in one of the greatest explosions known to mankind. And uh, then, of course, they don't know what it is then in 1939, but we do now that it was the atomic bomb she was predicting. Hmm. Well, certainly the setting of that time adds to the edge of your plot line. So let's talk about, let's see, I've got uh, a long list of characters. You're good at creating characters. <laughs> So let's talk about Louis Gomez. 
Oh, Lou. Lou. Sorry. 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 No. Louis. Louis Gomez. Lou Gomez. He's, um, he's about 50 years old. He's of Mexican descent. He's a, a deputy uh, a, a, a policeman. He's a detective, and he has a partner named uh, Randy Williams. And the two uh, are off trying to um, find out who killed uh, the uh, guy under the pier. And uh, they get involved with a woman named uh, Dorothy, who is the daughter of one of the gangsters. And the, da- the gangster lives up in the Kent- in Kentner Hills on Kentner Avenue. And uh, she, this woman, Dorothy, is a very beautiful, very sexy uh, very interested in men in general, and she happens to really be in love with, as much as she can be for the kind of person she is, with Randy. And so Lou doesn't know that Randy and Dorothy are friends. And so Lou's out trying to find out what happened and how uh, how Dorothy got involved. But as it happens, Dorothy... Uh, has a beautiful car, and she picks up uh, the guy who got killed and drives him out to Malibu in this beautiful car. And then, of course, eventually he gets thrown into the water and washes up under the Santa Monica Pier. And Dorothy, uh, we don't know very much about her at first, but we realize that she has a, this beautiful car. It turns out to be a Bugatti and it, there's only three Bugattis in the whole Southern California. One belongs to a regular guy. One belongs to George Rapp, the movie star, and the other one belongs to Dorothy. And so they, as soon as they found out that she was the one, one of the people who had the uh, Bugatti, they knew that she was involved in the murder. But until that, till then, people lied about who owned the car and where it was going and it it was the fastest car at the time it was capable of 120 miles an hour and so what she did is she uh she left she killed well uh uh, the body was washed up under the shore but she was gone she got on a plane at douglas aircraft in santa monica and uh flew to mexico and she had a rendezvous there in Mexico, and then she drove home in her Bugatti and did whatever she was going to do, and then she flew back, drove back to Mexico, and then flew back, and she gets picked up at the airport by uh, Cliff Toms, and so he thinks that she's in Mexico all this time, and yet the other people who are involved know that she's in in Santa Monica, but they think she's in Mexico. We don't like to have too complicated. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got a lot of twists and turns in this mystery novel, and of course, these all the characters in this plot line are trying to distinguish the lies from the truth. But as you put it, unfortunately, they're all about to discover that even the truth won't help them now. <laughs> That's true. I, I, 
and actually there are two plot lines I'll just briefly go over. Uh, what happens is the people from back east send a guy to, uh, we call him Nicky, Nicky the animal, send a guy to put an end to Earl Warren's uh, uh, efforts to end the war. Um, but um, so but he turns out to be a killer himself. And so there's Nicky the animal who is killing women, but he's while well, he's hanging around waiting for Earl Warren to show up so that he could kill Earl Warren. But in the meantime, the two don't know each other yet until the end, when then they realize that the truth won't help them now because they all are together. The interesting thing about the book is we have we we love writing little kind of jokes and stuff. One of my favorite sections is when they first get this body off of the uh, they uh, off of the uh, out of the water. Uh, they notice that he has uh, tattoos on him, and so they have one of the tattoos says thirteen and a half, and the other says shell Q, S H E L Q. And so uh, then the in the uh, detectives tried to figure out what that means. They discovered that thirteen and a half means uh, ten, ten jurors, one judge, and half a chance. <laughs> and shell cue, they do a lot of investigating what that could possibly mean. And finally, they discover that it means. S for San Quentin and Q for San Quentin and hell in the middle, hell in San Quentin. So we have little little stories like that. And when they discover that it's hell in Jan- San Quentin, the guy says, well, that's juvenile. And the guy says, we're not dealing with geniuses here. <laughs> well, as we've already said, it's a fast-paced tale of murder and gangland intrigue. The title, The Truth won't help them now and we've been listening to joan hunter she's one of the authors along with her son stephen kobos joan what's the best way to get your book uh amazon.com very good well we appreciate you joining us on iUniverse radio thank you so much for the interview it's been a pleasure to talk to you You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. When your focus is to lose weight or maintain your present weight, exercising effectively to burn the most calories is crucial. You want to give yourself every advantage to burn as many calories as possible. One good tip is to do your strength training exercises standing up so you can keep your heart rate up Another tip is to perform multi-joint exercises when you can. For example, as you're doing a forward lunge, add bicep curls while you're coming up from the lunge. Another example is to execute a wide squat. And as you're coming up from the squat, perform a shoulder press. By doing these multi-joint exercises, you're putting more demands on your body, keeping your heart rate up, and working more muscles at the same time. The goal is to burn the most calories during that workout. I'm Annette Hammond. To hear other fitness and weight loss tips, visit our website at AnnetteHammond.com. 
Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. Greetings for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled War Ready in My Father's Shadow. And joining me from Texas, near the Houston area, is author Mary Lou Darst. Welcome to the program, Mary Lou. Thank you, Jay. Thank you very much. Well, this is an interesting book. Most uh, most of my authors, a lot of authors, will write uh, biographical sketches and uh, and and uh, books about their history and their life. It seems to be something sometimes that's a reflection or a, a way to honor parents or or upbringing. What was the purpose behind writing War Ready? Well, there were a couple of things. First of all, um, I began to think that maybe my grandsons should know the stories, know about their grandmother. And then I also wanted to honor my brother and my parents. Um, it was not such an easy life, and we did it, and um, I did want to honor my parents and my brother with the stories. And and thirdly, um, military families. Uh, not, not much is given to military families. It's always right the husband, the brother, the cousin, the men that go off to war, which are so deservedly of of um, credits. But military families uh, serve, too, in lots of different ways. Absolutely. You, your book really covers your upbringing till about age 16 when the military service, uh, I guess, dissipated in your family. Is that correct with your father? Yes. And, yes. and where, was his, where was his primary service, and what time frame are we talking about? Well, we're talking like from the end of World War II through the cold to the almost the end of the Cold War. Uh, so, but I was born in 1943, and he was away. He was in the war in England, and then when he came back, we moved. Uh, we moved every 18 months, and sometimes twice in one assignment from one neighborhood to another. Something. Uh, we lived in Alaska. Uh, I went to the first grade before Alaska was a state. And then um, in the middle 40s, and then uh, we lived in Japan seven years after the war, and six years later we lived in Munich, Germany. Yeah, you, and in between, we lived in lots of states. You also <laughs> mentioned the different wars that your father was involved in. What was his capacity? Was he in leadership in these uh, military uh, assignments, or how was he? How would you describe it? He was an army engineer, and he never talked about his work or what he did and we were not to ask i i can't say but he was uh, at one time he was a commander in japan when we lived there of of the engineers he was something like that he had terrific leadership qualities so i would not be surprised if he were in leadership in many things would would you call your observations of him in hindsight maybe ptsd that was uh, part of uh, part of that environment that family uh, structure yes my brother and i often talked uh while i was doing the book and uh, we both believed that he had strong symptoms of ptsd but like all men all warriors soldiers of that period nobody talked about their experiences Yes. No one talked about it. Yes, he he had some difficulty, especially with uh, with Korea, the Korean War. If I understand your your book correctly, right? We never even knew that he was in Korea. Wow! No one, my brother and I, no one said. You know, when we said goodbye to him, my mother was just dissolved in tears, and he left, and 
no one ever said, I mean, when he wrote letters or anything, no one ever said anything about Korea to us. And then after about a year and a half, we were, my brother and my mother and I were on our way to Nara, Japan, and he, he met us there. Interesting. And we did not know he'd even been there, my brother and I, until we were taking things out of his dresser after my parents had passed away. And we found at the bottom of drawer certificates and medals for service in Korea. Hmm. We just fainted. We couldn't believe it. You, anyway. you have titled your book War Ready, and then the subtitle mm-hmm. In My Father's Shadow. In My Father's Shadow right. has a significance to you. What is that? Um, I was in his shadow. <laughs> he was a strong <laughs> parent. Yes. He was military through and through, and he expected everyone around him to be the same way. And um, so that's that's probably where that came from. Did, did you, did you I, 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 as, as is obvious in your book, you love your dad, but was there also an element of uh, concern or fear or uh, awe that yeah, also accompanied that? Yeah, yeah, there was a lot of that, a lot of that. Of the, of the time that you spent in traveling about the globe, which was your favorite place to live? I have to say, not on Japan. It, we, as I said, we lived there seven years after the war. It was so different. It was still, there was still a lot of old Japan there. The women were beautiful, kimono, zorian geita, um, and there were there were people in Western clothes. I mean, skirts and men with slacks and and shirts. Um, but it was still very much old Japan, and um, very very different. Everything was very different. And I was ten years old. I was five feet tall, and I was taller than most Japanese people. Fascinating. Um, even the women who wore Zorian geita, the geitas were maybe three, maybe three, four inches off the ground, and I was still taller. And it was it was an amazing experience. Your observations of Germany. You also lived in Germany after the war. Right, about 13 years later. It was obvious that there had been an absolutely horrific war. Thirteen years later, there was still so much, so many the ruins, you know, the, the bullets, and all the all those things that that you know about already. Yes, the history was still still evident. Right. You have right. also mentioned something that was, uh, I guess, curiosity in my reading aspect of it. You on your final uh, return to the United States by ship. You were on board and right. uh, writing letters, and you looked up, and there was this strange-looking gentleman over in the corner that seems to be uh, seemed to be fascinated by you and your appearance. Share with my listeners a little of that story and uh, who that was. Well, you're kind to to introduce that scene like that. It was Salvador Dali, the uh, the artist painter. Um, he was very dramatic looking, his little pencil thin mustache that curled on the edges, edges and stared, you know. And uh, my mother came and whispered to me while I was writing letters on the stationery of the ship, and uh, she said, That's Salvador Dali. And I said, 
who is he? Who is Salvatore Dali? <laughs> An artist. And so I, I didn't look at him. I didn't know him. I didn't want him to stare at me. <laughs> I finished writing, and I looked up, and he was still staring. But I think that was just his demeanor. Mm-hmm. And I, we, we saw them later in the in the lounge after supper. He was sitting with his lovely wife and still staring at everyone. So Amazing. that was his demeanor. He was a very intense, yeah. an intense individual. Maybe making mental notes for, for sketches later. Who knows? You have uh, right. also included a lot of interesting photos in your book. Uh, where, which of the of the photos do you think our our readers are going to find most interesting? Well, there's some from Alaska with the snow, and um, there's a picture my mother took of us in the spring, and in the same in the same position in the same area, in the front yard. In winter, it's just <laughs> covered with white and bundled up in padded. Um, winter winter snowsuits. Um, the ones from Japan are uh, are most most especial to me. Uh, there's a picture of us with our little maid Hatsi in front of the old Japanese house where we lived. Um, Hatsi was like a member of our family. She was so dear. And um, then there's one in the first chapter, first page of the story of. Munich, uh, with Mr. Gruckenberg, Helga, and myself, and we're all in bathing suits. Mm-hmm. Mr. Gruckenberg has on his robe. Um, the Gruckenberg family were family to us. They were so kind to us, and we did things with them, went places with them at their house and at our house. So they were they were like family to us. And if you don't mind my saying, um, in twenty. 20- we were invited to Munich to give a book talk and reunited with Helga and Gerhardt. Hmm. Um, invited us to their home. It, gosh, after 53 years, I can't tell you what that's like. And it's hard to think about it without crocodile tears, so I'll well, let it go. <laughs> your your book is has taken really, although it is a biographical sketch of your life and your family's life, it really could be looked at in some respects as a a narrative or just a novel uh, because you've done a conversational style. Was that the best way to describe what you've done? Well, yes, and I, I appreciate that. Uh, I just felt like I was telling my story to people, but I was writing it down instead of telling it. Thank you. And how long did it take to complete? Well, um, like I said, I wrote two books at one time. And I was in a writing class and uh, at the time. And so I would say um, maybe four or five years, there was an incredible amount of emotion that I relived while writing that book and um, that I had not experienced um, growing up. And um, that emotion came forward and expressed itself and so it was a growing experience for me to do the book. I grew a lot as a person. As as a writer now, an author, looking back over what you have penned, is there something that came through that you didn't really plan on in the first place, uh, such as a, maybe an underlying message or a, or something that will will encourage or inspire the reader? 
Well, that's very kind. Um, well, my relationship with my father uh, was very tricky, and that's um, that's very apparent in the book. Um, and in our relationships with people in other cultures, uh, that was a wonderful experience, and I'm intensely grateful for the travel experiences that we had. Um, living in other cultures, being part of that culture, learning languages. Um, it, it was just an incredible experience, and I hope that I've imparted that in the book that other people can see and realize how important it is to know other cultures. Well, thank you for sharing your memoir and the process of writing War Ready in My Father's Shadow. My guest, Mary Lou Darst. Mary Lou, my listeners will want to get a copy of this or need to get a copy of this. It's part uh, travelogue, part personal family history, and uh, just a, a good read. How do they get a hold of War Ready? Thank you kindly. Um, it's available on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com and iUniverse.com. All three of those. Is there a possibility you have a website developed yet? I I do, but I don't have it within my brain. Okay, not a problem. They can <laughs> do a, they can do a search under your name. Uh, two two words or two names: Mary Lou L O U and Darst is spelled D A R S T. If they do a search under that, they will be able to also locate uh, War Ready and probably your website. So, thank you again for joining thank me today you. and sharing your story. Blessings. Thank you kindly. My pleasure for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.